A Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. Here we are, another episode of The Wellness Collective. Cecilia, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Oh, I'm a bit frazzled. <laughs> you are. I know. I wish sometimes we could actually see pictures of us. I mean, if you look at Instagram, you might see a photo of how we look exactly right now as we're recording because you look we, beautiful, your hair's oh. nice, your makeup's done, you've got clothes on. I know. I However, okay. I can tell you've just got a little air of rattle about you. Book launches are hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Especially when you're trying to do them in two countries, but that's Okay. I just keep thinking you of like a bigger a purpose. There's, I just think of the, all the women that we're reaching and mm-hmm. the questions that are coming through and that's another whole podcast. Yes. Yes, it is. We will do that. Um, but other than that, no. It is also the season of silliness. As we record this, yes, we yeah. are. We are heading into the season of silliness. But yeah. you may not be, as you're listening to this, you may be sitting on a beach. I hope you are. I hope you are. I hope you've put your magazine down and you're just gazing out at the ocean <laughs> and uh, looking forward to some good chats today. All right, we do have a wonderful guest with us today. And it might be someone that if you have listened to a couple of Podcast One podcasts, you may be familiar with. Yes. Or you may be familiar with him from his former life where he was a very well-known sports person in Australia, especially the southern states. He is... Wayne Schwartz. <laughs> Hello, welcome, oh, Wayne. Thank you, ladies. Very nice of you. And thank you for the opportunity to come on to your humble little podcast, which I've listened to. Oh, wow. I love it. There's that, not many male listeners. That makes me scared when someone says, oh, I listen to your podcast. And you think, really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. There are people on the other side of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> what have you, I said? You're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. Well, we, we're very excited. I'm very excited by this episode today because fellow podcaster and actually, though, we're very much on the same page, yes. in the same lane. Yep. Um, what I love is a lot of it, uh, for your listeners, I would assume, are men. Mixed bag. Mixed bag. Yeah, but we're slowly starting to encourage men to come into the conversations. Mm. Hang on, before we launch too far, if Sorry. you haven't listened to Wayne's podcast, oh, it's yes. called Pucker Up. Yes. And can you explain what Pucker Up means? Yeah, Pucker Up is a Hindi word and it means authentic and genuine. And it, I, I spent about four months trying to work out what I wanted to call the name. So the Pucker Up, I've got a business of the same name. And I spent that time trying to work out, it needed to do two things. One, it had to be incredibly personal to me myself, but it also was something that we wanted to empower other people to do the same. And Pucka means authentic and genuine. So I was neither of those two things for a long time in my life, battling with mental health conditions. So it's a daily reminder, be open and honest about your journey. Don't try to pretend. Don't don't live the lie. So that's something that I live by, but it's also something that I want to encourage men and women, boys and girls of all ages to do the same. Because when we do that, we stop investing time pretending we invest time into healing. And that's what it's all about. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That so many of us walk around with this facade or a Mm. mask on and you know, it's not until you drop that mask in whatever situation it is. Um, for you, it was massive, and we'll get you to talk about that a little bit. But it's it's so much easier just being yourself. Yep. Oh my goodness, yes, isn't yep. it? But I see this. I've seen this in the, especially in the wellness industry, because it was almost like the floodgates. Maybe four years ago, really opened up on wellness, and I say that in inverted, inverted commas. commas yeah, yep. like it was. It was everywhere. It was the cool thing to do, and everyone was talking about it, and it it 
there was a lot of people advocating, which is amazing, but there was also a lot of people that just wanted to be in that industry <laughs> that really didn't have qualifications to be there. And I kept saying at the time, you know, when you can see something's going to happen, but you actually don't want to see it. I kept saying the back end's going to fall out of this. Mm. It really is because mm. these people aren't being authentic. Yeah. And if you look at the people now who are in the, in this industry, it's probably halved. And it doesn't help that we had a lot of things in the media that happened, you know, people being dishonest about oh, their diagnosis yes. and they were advocates for what they were actually advocating for was amazing, mm. but it wasn't authentic. Mm. And yeah, it, yeah, look, I, I agree. I, I think in some ways I'm actually glad that that actually happened. I agree, I'm not yes. glad that people have been impacted no. negatively, no. but it's almost as if the industry corrected itself because if you're not authentic, and, and I love that word, um, Nat, is, and that is that if I'm not living what I am encouraging people to do, then I'm nothing more than a hypocrite. Mm. So mm. I, 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 I live this. This is really important to me. And I think that then gives me the ability to educate and hopefully help other people do the same thing. But if I'm not living that every day, then I'm wasting my time and I'm not being, I'm not being fair to myself and I'm not being fair to the people I'm and trying to engage And yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, very much It's flipping exhausting well, to pretend you to be someone. <laughs> how do you remember? Yeah. I know, right? It's totally. I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. Um, and you get, eventually you get good at kind of going, oh, that's that's not who they are. Yeah, the bull filter. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah, you can. <laughs> we don't put the little E on. Someone does that yeah, for us. So, good. Tell us so your, your tolerance of that, Yes. Drops or, or reduces really significantly. Mm-hmm. So you don't invest the time that you maybe once upon a time invested into because you tolerated it. And I actually think that's a good thing. I agree. Absolutely. I, I think also too, there's like this moment where you go, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. You yeah. know, like if you are, you're constantly worried about what other people are thinking or or the way, you know, you look out, out in the world and all those, well, that's the same thing really, isn't it? But there's, what's the worst that can happen to you? I also think that it's something that comes as we just get life experience as well. We probably in our 20s were more likely to pretend to want to do something or be something, Mm. I think, as we get older. Um, And I I can't actually just wait to be like 75 and really not care. (laughs) 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 You know, just like whatever. You know, Chris, my husband said that he went and saw... um, Jerry Seinfeld and how he talks through the stages and the phases and, you know, he gets to the point where you can just be just totally you but almost a bit rude, like, I don't even want to know, like, whatever. Whereas before <laughs> then, you you know, you you actually do care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's about not caring either, obviously, but it's, it's no. I think it's about Knowing just yourself. not buying into that and just being, just being authentically you and solid in that. I think that's so important. But Wayne, this is a different you to the you when you were playing as a, a professional AFL player, isn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. So, 100%. can you tell us what was going on with you back then? So that's what the mid nineties. Yeah, you were 19... at the peak of your career. Uh, yeah, I had a reasonably good football career, um, but in August of nineteen ninety three, on the 9th of August to be exact, I was diagnosed with depression. And uh, I was 23 years of age. I was five years into my AFL career. I was three games short of playing 100 games. So on the surface, you look at this fit, healthy, successful athlete, male athlete, and you think, uh, flying, performing really well, happy, enjoying, getting paid really well, all of those type of things. But that wasn't actually what was really happening. I was emotionally bankrupt, spiritually lost, and I was diagnosed with depression um, in that year. And that was the beginning of a journey that I've been on for 25 years. And I have grown up in a, in a country, in a world where there's a, a tremendous amount of expectation based on our gender. Mm. Girls and women are expected to behave a certain way. 
and not expected to behave another way. And I can say the exact same thing with regards to men. And I grew up with this mentality, which I don't believe anymore, and I don't allow myself to perpetuate the same expectation that men are meant to be strong, men are meant to be stoic, resilient, and men are meant to be disconnected emotionally. I was, and I don't want this to be interpreted as being uh, disrespectful, but when I look back on my life, when I walked into the North Melbourne Football Club at the beginning of the 1986 season as a 17-year-old boy from country Victoria, everything from the day that I walked in until the day that I walked out in June of 2002, all of my lessons, all of my education, all of the experiences, all of the opportunities were to help me be a better football player. And I was. It worked. And I I had two toolboxes. One was full. It allowed me to cope with stress in one area and one area only in my life, and that was on a football field. AFL footy at the elite level is really stressful, really challenging. It's combative, it's aggressive, all of those things, which makes it great. And I could cope. But I had a toolbox on my left-hand side, which was empty, and that's my emotional intelligence. I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to think. And I didn't know how to communicate what I was thinking and feeling to the people in my life when I was under emotional stress. So I didn't have the tools or the confidence that allowed me to deal with a really challenging situation. It's through a 25-year journey that I've learnt to develop and put tools into that toolbox and I continue to do it all the time. I was going to say. You were very young though, weren't you, as well? Yeah, but, I mean, if you think about if you'd, you'd moved from country what, Victoria to can I ask? Warnable. Oh, I'm from Aldera, that's why I always oh, ask. Whenever someone says country Victoria, it's like all one and the same, isn't yeah. it? Like you're it's, either in yeah. the city or the country. Yeah. But I also think you that definitely comes... definitely know each other. Totally. That comes with some other challenges too. You know, adjusting to all of that, it's a completely different world. And, you know, not to water down, people in the, that grew up in the city, they had their own challenges. But I really yes, think that, totally, I think that someone coming from just being put into that situation where life is very different mm. already, you know, gets the, that ball rolling. Yeah, look, I think um, I, I've, I've spent, I haven't spent any time trying to work out or understand why I got depressed. Mm. I don't see any benefit in that. It just happened. But what I have done, I've reflected back on my life and looked at some of the characteristics which may have contributed. I'm obsessive by nature. I'm a perfectionist. I have a very black, I had a very black and white view of the world. So those characteristics also helped me be a successful athlete. Mm -hmm. But those same characteristics also contributed to some of the challenges that I went through. And I can remember as a young boy growing up, I was either good or bad. If mum and dad were happy, I was Mm. a good person. If mum and dad were upset or angry at me, I was a bad person. And that was my mentality. That mentality, I've got no doubt, contributed to some of the challenges that I went through. Mm, It's interesting, actually, because obviously, you know, that definitely, I think, like you said, it's no point working out why, but I think little factors like that really do play in. And obviously, we carry this story with us and we can do that for the rest of our lives if Mm. we don't know any different. You know, it's quite interesting, though, just I've just in the new book that I've just written, it's it's, um, reaching out to young women. So it's about young women's um, sexual and reproductive health. But in doing that, what I'm learning in terms of what us as parents or mothers or what we were taught as well um, is so different from what this next generation is currently getting. And I I wonder, um, I think actually we're making some pretty big inroads into this next generation. They're very fortunate and I think they're going to be a lot healthier Mm. than what we were. But we really, there was a big gap in what was normal in terms of communication between our parents, how much, not love they could give us, but you know, there were certain things that they just didn't do. I mean, co-sleeping, for example, 
for my parents' um, generation was just like a hard no-no. Like you just didn't do that. Whereas, I don't know about you, but the kids come in the bed all the time. Oh, yeah. My mother's horrified. Just one example, but it's emotionally feeling secure. If you're not getting that and you're the child that needs that, then it's just a lifetime of these little snippets Mm. that that get us, that add up, right? Mm. So I just think that we are changing this. And by talking about it, definitely, you know, we're just making it part of who we are. There's nothing um, bad to Mm. use the word. Yeah, there's nothing taboo about it. I think one of the I think one of the things that I've observed a lot, but also questioned, is I think our parents. Uh, of a similar generation. Mm. They, they loved us, but they loved of us course. in different ways. Yeah. Whereas I know in my own life with my three kids and especially my son is that I, I don't want this to be negative in any way about my dad. My dad loves me and I love him and of he's course. been a great person in my life. But I hug and kiss my boy every day and we have conversations every week about the importance of being emotionally connected. He's 11. Mm. And I talk to him about this, this this skill that we all have and we're born with, boys and girls, and that's the ability to cry. And when we cry, it's normal and it's okay and it's really important to be able to release that experience, allow yourself to do that. And I, I have these conversations because they're conversations I didn't have. Mm. And I think that the kids coming through now do have more opportunity to develop and grow, um, but also think they're presented with different challenges that we weren't. Oh, I mean, gosh. There was no oh, phones, no computers totally. when I went to school. My goodness, I'm so right? glad Facebook wasn't around when I was a teenager. Correct. I'm that old. I started prep with a blackboard and a piece of chalk. Yes. So, you know, I, I think, I think you know, it was oh, That was just a country thing. I know, I know. But you look at my kids go, a blackboard and a piece of chalk? Did you graduate to a blue is. pencil? Remember when you got to graduate to your pen licence and uh, stuff? HB pencil. And, yeah, yeah, HB pencil is big news. But I do yeah. agree. I, I I agree that we are we are making inroads, but we have a lot of work to of do course, still. Yeah. yeah. I think this idea though that we treat boys and girls differently is really important. Mm. Um, my son is in uh, grade two this year and when he was in prep, I remember he told me that someone asked him what his favourite colour was and he said pink. And they said, well, it can't be pink because you're a boy and boys don't like pink. Yep. And he said, well, it is pink because I am a boy and that's my favourite colour. And I was so proud of him. And you should be. I was really proud of him because I said, well, good on you. If that's your favourite colour, you stand up for what you Mm. believe in. And I try to make sure I do that with my daughter as well. Because like you say, it's those little things of don't cry, you know, harden up. That is a big one, actually. Um, You mentioned that. But that was definitely what was ingrained into me as a child. Don't cry. You'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, we all need that moment. Well, the hard part is you've to got to actually be you. very aware because your default is actually that thing great in your head, right? right. So, actually, my chief, one of the kids was doing this this morning, mm. um, and I found myself about to say, "Don't cry, you're okay," mm. and she is okay, of course. Mm. But it's such an important, like, especially as at a young ch- or a child, they're not emotionally evolved. That mm. is how they're dealing with the emotion. Yeah. If we're constantly trying to suppress that, that's not ideal. I love what you just said, though, that you found yourself with your own child, you defaulted to how you do yes. condition, right? I'm not being critical yeah. of your mum no. and dad because they do the best they of can for they, the parents. Yes. But here's, here, the thing that I love about your response is you've got a level of self-awareness to identify, hang on, this is how I've been brought up, but maybe that's not appropriate from my own child. And this is something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. I, I deliver presentations all over the country and by the end of this year, I would have done 60 presentations to all sorts of organisations. And one of the questions that I ask the audiences, male and female, who's ever had something along these lines ever said to them? Don't cry, don't be a sook, uh, toughen up, man up, 
That's You're playing not how like a, man. a girl. Yeah, right. And I, I, I think that's incredibly unfair <laughs> and sexist, whatever that's meant to mean, right? Yeah. And what's interesting is men and women put their hands up and acknowledge that they've had that said. This is why I think it's really important. And that is this. I then follow up and ask them, how did it make you feel when it was said to you? Did you feel worthy, deserving, mm. like you were supported, mm. loved and understood? No. How did it make you feel? I was at fault. Something was wrong with me. I made the other person feel uncomfortable. What are we really saying when we say that? We are shaming people into believing that that is not a part of being a human mm. being. We laugh, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get upset, and we, we are born with this ability to cry because you... I did a presentation this week, predominantly male audience, in an uh, IT company, and I asked them, who can remember a time when they were before the age of 10 where you hurt yourself, you cried, you'd felt no shame, no guilt, no embarrassment, you ran to mum or dad, you wanted their comfort, you wanted their contact and you wanted their love. Every man put his hand up. I then said, who's carried that way of behaving through their adult life? Not one man put their hand up and Mm. there were 60 people in the audience. And I said, Mm. why? Because I've been told I can't behave that way. Mm. This is why I believe this is such a big problem for our, our, our world and our country and our family and our communities. We lose nine people on average every day in Australia to suicide. Yeah. Seven are men. Wow. Yeah, right? that's definitely, that. definitely a, a bigger proportion of um, men that, that struggle with this because, you know, it is a natural thing that women tend to share. Yep. You know, you'll ring your girlfriend and go, <laughs> oh, gosh, you never know what happened to me today. This has happened, da, 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 my husband, blah, 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 or my partner. And, you know, and once you've said it through a few times... Yep. You've processed it. You've processed it. Part of the the download. And it doesn't, once you say it out loud, it doesn't sound as big. Mm. Totally. I was whinging to someone the other day and as I'm starting to (laughs) go through it, this is actually so silly. You're like, like, I'm just going to stop. Can I just stop? (laughs) (laughs) I kept talking, but but as I do. (laughs) But it is. But but I think we definitely have a problem with men that don't process it that way. But how do we, how do we change that? Well, well, I I think again, I, I don't have a tertiary education, but again, I've got a lived experience. I had obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety and depression. And I've worked my way through that and I manage anxiety on a regular basis. And I work in this area and I've worked in this area for 14 years. And the thing that I've observed is this, and there's research that supports this argument. Boys and girls are are all born emotionally connected and expressive. I do market research in my presentations. I see the Mm. responses. Mm. Boys and girls will cry. They'll get angry. They'll laugh. They'll just do because they're born with a full suite of emotions that allows them to feel, express and behave in a manner relative to the way that they are feeling at the time. But what tends to happen from from about the ages of 8, 9 and 10 for males and young boys is that we are conditioned to disconnect emotionally. That's not how a man behaves. Don't cry. Don't be a sook. Toughen up get up, don't carry on that way. Mm. That messaging, what it actually does, if you think about our emotions as a four-lane highway, when we regurgitate those lessons and messages that have been handed down through previous generations, what we're actually doing is we are narrowing the lanes on the highway for the individuals that are receiving the messages. Mm. What does that really mean? When our kids or our loved ones get under emotional stress, We want them to have the full highway of emotions. Mm. But what we're actually doing is giving them a one-way street on the side of a major highway. That means that when they're under emotional stress, 
I'll become angry, mm. I'll become physically violent, I'll drink, I'll take illegal drugs because I don't know how to cope. Mm. So that's why I'm passionate about this issue of creating spaces for men and women of all ages to behave in that way, reconnect emotionally because when we've got the four-lane highway, we've got the ability to feel, to think and to talk. And when we do that, we've got a connection. But unfortunately, a lot of people and a lot of men don't feel they have the connection because they've been conditioned to disconnect emotionally. It's got to change. And also, when you do narrow it down into this one lane, I think sometimes it's not that you don't want to get it out, but you don't know how. Correct. Like, I think that's the thing that that a lot of men lose the ability to be able to actually connect how they're feeling Mm. with a a way of verbalising it Mm. or, or putting it into some perspective. I love this. I've got actually another um, facet I want to add to this, but let's take a short break and we'll be back straight after that. On this episode of the Wellness Collective podcast, we have a very special guest, uh, Wayne Schwoss from the Pucker Up podcast here on Podcast One as well. But um, it's not just that, you know, he lives in the same building as us. <laughs> he's, got, he's, he's got a wealth of stuff to talk about today, especially from the male perspective. And we're talking about emotions, connecting with your emotions, being authentic, dealing with anger, all these things that we can see as, as women and, you know, as men in the community, you can see it in a lot of the men around us. I think also I wanted to add to what we were just talking about before we took that break. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the sense of community? Because I think once upon a time that was a big part of keeping us Mm. connected and, you know, whether it was a group that we belonged to, a religious group or just a smaller community that you lived with uh, in terms of a village, we moved away from that somewhere, right? Yep. And do you see this as being a factor also, a contributing factor? No doubt. We've never been more connected thanks to technology, but we've never been more disconnected as 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 a species. And human beings are socially connected people by nature. Do you know what? Can I out you? Mm. When I walked into the um, studio before, I'd never met you before, what did you say? I'm a hugger. I'm a hugger. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. So you're right, yeah, you know. like It's, it's true because I it's see... It's not that so, difficult. It's really important that we, we feel a sense of connecting, a connection. We, it's really important that we feel a sense of belonging because that's got a lot to do mm. with our self-worth and our self-confidence. And I think one of the challenges, I, I'm a obsessed cyclist, road cyclist, and, and my wife said to me recently, she goes, you're a better father and a better husband when you ride. And it took mm. me a while, but I understand that it's important for you to spend time with your tribe. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, all the mates that you go riding with. And it's true. Like I've got my family and I love them dearly, but also it's important to my life that I have a group of men that I can ride a bike with. And okay, we might put a bit of on each other, but it's, <laughs> it's an opportunity to come together and connect. And sometimes on a bike, we end up having really good conversations about life stuff. And I think that's a really important opportunity for us all to be a part of. I can actually see the same thing with my husband. He's a CrossFitter. And he, when he first started doing CrossFit, he that's exactly what he found. He found his community. Now, I didn't understand it. Mm. And he'd come home and he'd tell me all about it. And I would want to poke pins in my eyes, like I would be, and I'd try and say like, you know, attentive, like, yep, okay, That, and he'd tell me the moves that, that and I was like, <laughs> this is really a sweating offence over there. It was actually torture, like it was literally like, but but I could see it, it ignited something yeah. in him and it wasn't the CrossFit, it was the people Correct. and him him belonging mm. and, and having like-minded, mentally strong, I think that's the thing in a community like that, that was the, the um, when I say mentally strong, driven is probably the word, you mm. know, you've got to 
to stay focused. And, and that's something that he didn't have anywhere else in his life and hadn't had probably since he was young and playing, um, you know, sports that he was team sports. So it was very, very interesting. And eventually I, st- I started crossfitting with him only because he loved it so much. It was a time that we could spend together. But what's interesting is that we've got this community now of people that we wouldn't otherwise have spent time with that yeah. when we get together, we kind of, it just, it's it's excellent. But it, it is a community and the men and the women and, you know, everyone has a great time. But I just think that support and also for movement in terms of that mental aspect as well. Yeah. For him, I know that if I, if I can't sort of clear the space for him to get there, that I know it's not, not going to be a great evening. Mm. Like he needs to mm. get there regularly yeah. for his mental health as well. And he's not diagnosed with anything. I can just tell. Mm. But it's also the physical aspect That's of right. it. Because yes. when you're doing the exercise, then there's obviously the, the endorphins Correct. and the, yep. the blood flow and everything that's happening with your body. And I think men, I don't know about the hormone aspect of it, but I really feel like men need that to be balanced. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I'm listening to um, your response with your husband and I think what's really important here, the research is irrefutable. Um, there's there's four main chemicals that get released when we exercise, male or female, and two are really important. They all are important, but serotonin and dopamine, mm. they are chemicals that help us be happier. We feel good. We feel good about ourselves. So if there's someone listening and they're, and they're, they're not feeling like or they're feeling like they're unhappy or they're overwhelmed, go for a walk. Mm, a 15-minute yes. walk will help you in the short term to feel better. But then you have that social connection with a group of other like-minded people that are there sharing a common goal. They want to get fit. They want to get healthy. They're not judging you. In fact, they're supporting no, you. exactly. And I think the other thing, I've never been like this, but I drive past pubs 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock on the way home, and I'm not trying to be critical of these people, but I see men in the pubs. That's not connecting. No, not at all. That's not connecting with people having authentic and genuine conversations. Alcohol is a default position that helps us cope with stress in our life. I don't drink alcohol anymore because it interrupts my ability to sleep. But I also have learnt the value and benefit of coming into safe spaces and being prepared to be vulnerable. And I think that when you do that, one of the interesting things that I've observed, and this is not about me, I'm just a part in this broader conversation. What I've noticed with my male friends is this, is because I'm prepared to be vulnerable and authentic, I'm actually giving other men permission to do the same. I was going to say that. What's incredible is watching men, and some of these men are hard men, come into that vulnerable space cry, show raw emotion, but watch them grow. It's almost, it's like this flower closed bulb and then slowly over time the bulb opens and Mm. there's this beautiful soul in there who's wanted to come out but just didn't have the space for it. And that's why I love doing what I do. Yep, Mm. absolutely. So you say that um, anxiety is something that you uh, face with regularly. Yep. Can we have some, what do you do? Like, yep. What are some tips for our, our listeners in terms of um, coping with that? Because yep. it's difficult. It is. It's challenging. Um, a week and a half ago, I went off medication. I've been on medication for six months to help me. But, but to answer that question, um, I'll go back a step. I tend to work too much. If I worked too much and I was drinking, I'd have an interrupted sleep, which meant that I was tired and I was agitated. My diet would drop off. Uh, I wouldn't be exercising as much. So when I have a bout of anxiety, I can go back and I can very quickly look, I'm working too much, I'm not eating well, I'm drinking, I'm not exercising, I need to prioritise all of those things again. What I do every day is thanks to um, a very dear friend of mine, Tammy Ruse, who's Paul Ruse's wife, um, I interviewed her for my podcast. Mm. 
for the last 14 out of 15 days, I've meditated every morning for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's now something that is part of my daily activity. So I meditate. I haven't drunk for over 220 days because drinking impacts my ability to sleep. I prioritise my sleep. I exercise a lot. I eat a predominantly plant-based diet, thanks to my wife, who's a vegan, so it's really not my choice, <laughs> but I'm better for it. You sneak into the pub for a steak on no, steak I don't, night, I don't eat steak. Don't the only meat I eat is um, sushi or chicken. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I do constantly is I talk to my wife all the time when things are good when things are not so good. I talk to my GP all the time when things are good, when things are not so good. And I I have a unique relationship with my chairman um, of Pucker Up the Business. I hug him and tell him I love him every time I see him. And that's three or four times a week. Why do I do that? Because that's important to me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live a life trying to meet the expectations of other people. I want to live my life and, and live it in a way that is important to me. And I love this man. And it's important that I let the men that I that are important to me know that that's what they mean to me. I'm not afraid to do that. So when I do that, it's good for me. Sure. Mm. So that's what and I And them. Yeah. They're loving back. I'm still fascinated about how you were going through all of this when you were so entrenched in this macho culture of footy. Mm. Um, I had my first experience of dealing with a footy club this year when my son played footy at the local level. And I was like, wow, it's still really a boys club. So, I mean, are you doing work now with footy clubs and stuff? Are you trying to get this message out there so that you're normalising the conversation about how men feel mentally and about how they can change it up so that if there are other guys playing footy or in whatever group it is that feel like they can't be authentic, that, that you're giving them the opportunity to do that? Yeah, it's I, I've tried I've tried with my own industry and code, and they're they're slowly making some changes. But I grew frustrated with their lack of enthusiasm to address the issue. Mm. But there are players, current, past. There are coaches, past and current, who are going who are going through things. And I've supported various people in the industry about that. We're not focusing on men's mental health. We're focusing on mental health for everybody. But yeah. I think people associate my past career with men, and that's okay. Um, so we, we, we're about normalising mental health and emotional wellbeing. We're committed to ending suicide. I passionately believe mm. about that mission yep. every day. And in regards to the beginning of, of, of the question, Cecilia, how did I manage it? I self-medicated for six years. I drank alcohol. Mm. I was borderline alcoholic. I smoked an incredible amount of marijuana and I took anything else I could get my hands on. And I, I don't want people to think that I'm glorifying it because I wasn't. I didn't have the skill or confidence to make different decisions, so I self-medicated out of desperation. Let me be very clear, after a thorough six-year experiment, doesn't work. (laughs) Manifestly makes it harder. Mm. And I invested 12 years of my life hiding, lying and pretending to everybody bar four people, three professionals and my wife, that I was happy and healthy. It nearly Mm. cost me my life. That's why I do what I do because I don't want people to wait 12 minutes before they start to get their help because it's not worth that. And that's why I I live a life that is authentic authentic to me because I lived a lie for 12 years to protect what I thought was more important and that was your thoughts, your opinions, your behaviours and your your actions. Which you can't change anyway. They're going (laughs) to say or do what they want to do, right? Absolutely. And the the thing about that is that when, when you invest into the facade, you're actually not investing where it needs to be, mm. and that is to healing, and that is to, to becoming a healthy, happy person again. It's not mm. worth it. But on suicide, I think anyone that has been affected directly by someone that they know or love taking their own life, you know, it's easy to say we need to stop it, but I still find this conversation really difficult because what 
what can we do? Like you, yep. were, you were lucky enough that you realised you had to turn things around because, you know, you had stuff to go on for. But mm. this idea that, um, you know, people are in such a terrible place yep. mentally yep. that that's the only way they can see out, well, I, it's I, so hard. I got help. I, I, I wanted to end my life. When I collected a premiership medal in 1996, becoming a premiership player, I was thinking about how I could take my life. Mm. I'd completely lost all hope. But fortunately for me, my wife and my doctor never gave up. Mm. They're the reason I'm alive. And I thank them for that regularly. Material possessions don't make us happy. Money just gives us choice, more or less choice, depending on how much money we've got. So while I respect that this is an uncomfortable, difficult topic to talk about, Mm. I love talking about it because it matters. Every life matters. And how we can begin to tackle it is by normalising mental health and emotional wellbeing. When we talk about health, we get the physical part. Yeah. But what we're not putting together in the same basket is the emotional part of it. And we need to continue to create the spaces for people to talk openly and honestly about challenges in their life, not judging them, just allowing them to talk. What can I do to help you? How can we get you to get the professional support that you need? Because unfortunately, suicide is an outcome to a crisis. Mm -hmm. I don't believe people need to get into a crisis. And how we prevent them from getting into a crisis is by creating spaces for them to come into and talk about whatever it is in their life that is causing them stress. Because stress is the precursor to mental health conditions. If we can deal with the stress, we prevent the crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I like this so much. I think that it is, it really is. It's about continuing to have the conversation really if you and if you're sitting here listening and you're thinking what can I do how can I help I think actually the most powerful thing is when you ask someone how are you and they say I'm good thanks and you say actually how are you mm. like the second time or the mm. third time it's usually the third time you're oh, okay <laughs> but it's that's it, those sorts yeah. of things you know people that you love don't ask them just once because the default answer is always I'm, I'm good mm. you know it is it's yep. very difficult because it's I mean, so hard but it's just about talking I really think it's about having the conversation it is and supporting, supporting people mm. with that. And it's okay to talk about it. Mm. Well, uh, um, a friend of ours who worked at the radio station took his own life 10 years ago. And he was the loveliest, kindest, happiest on the surface person you would ever yep. have spent time with. And every conversation you had with him, you walked away feeling like you were walking on a cloud because he always made you feel good about mm. yourself. Mm. So he deflected. And it wasn't until... You know, it had happened in the aftermath that that everyone just looked around at each other and said, how? How could that have gotten to that point where none of us were aware Mm. of what a terrible situation he was in? I did actually love that. I saw Sarah Wilson quote something that it was along the lines of ask your strongest friend how they are. Mm. Because it's always, you know, not always, but often Mm. it is that person. So, yeah. The mask. Absolutely. Well, lots to talk about. Okay, so before we let you go, have you got any tips for us ladies who have men in our lives, be they partners, brothers, work colleagues? Loved ones. Anybody? How do we how do we start this conversation yeah, with I'm, our guys? I'm really glad. I've thought about this mm. um, a, a bit uh, leading up to this conversation. I, th- I think the advice that I would give any lady out there who wants to help her influential men in her life, irrespective of their age, begin to be able to communicate more consistently. Understand that the men in your life may not have the skill or capacity to be able to talk in the manner that you would like them to. So what I mean by that is they've been conditioned to behave a certain way. 
So I didn't know how to think, feel, or talk. I had to learn that from the age of 25. I'm now 50. I've continued to learn that. So if you want the men in your life to be able to talk more, don't say things like, oh, you don't talk. Oh, you never say anything. Because what that's telling him is, well, I'm already closed. I'm going to close down Mm. more because I don't feel like you'll support me. And that allows me to begin to talk. So for me, if I was in a lady's shoes, I would... I would invest time into creating a safe space that just allows the influential men men in your life to come into and talk when they're ready. Mm. Don't judge them. Don't criticise them. Sometimes we give a smart-ass answer going back that makes them just put the armour on and shut down. Become aware of what we're saying to the men in our lives and let them know that if and when you're ready and you'd like to talk to me about something, I'll listen. I just want to be able to listen. And when they do talk, thank them for it encourage them. I really appreciate you telling me how you're feeling at the moment. Let me know what else I can do. It's really about open dialogue and it's about also allowing the men the space where they can come into that that safe space and just talk about whatever it is. They may not say it how you like it and they may not say the way that you would say it, but the fact that they're saying it is the most important thing. That's what I'd say. So important. I love this. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Before we go, I just want to say if you or anyone you know needs some help, you can call Lifeline, which is 13 11 14. Yep. Your podcast is a wonderful place to go for some inspiration. Yes. Thank you, ladies. Absolutely. On this particular subject. Totally. And there is a lot of help out there. So please, please don't suffer in silence. Correct. No. That's not what, no. no Let's hug it out. Totally. <laughs> Even that in itself, like, is yeah. so powerful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Before we do go, we've promised to start reading some reviews. So I've just pulled a couple up. If okay. you don't mind. All thank right, you good. very much. Okay. Verena has said, thank you, Nat and Cecilia. I've listened to all episodes and learned so much. I've recommended your podcast to a few friends now who also got addicted. Oh, that's <laughs> um, a kind of addiction that yes, we, we are like saying this. is yes. fine. That's, that's okay. Cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. topics and guests are empowering without trying to tell people what they have to do. Love it. Bring it to the next level. I love that actually because we definitely are not here to preach to people. We just want to give information mm. and mm. just take the little bits that you need. Oh, it's so good. So good. We're like One an more. encyclopedia. One more. <laughs> I know. Matter Wellbeing says, really enjoy listening to Nat and Cecilia making my commute to work and uni so cruisy. Their conversation flows so naturally. It's because we're both crazy. Um, and topics are all Always interesting and engaging. Some great guest speakers as well. Thank you. Love you guys. Including Wayne. Exactly. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Awesome work. Thanks Thank for you so much on. for, for coming in and taking the time. And um, continue to please continue doing what you're doing because it's it's so important. Well, I say the same thing to both of you. Yeah, well. And I might even put a review up shortly. Oh, oh amazing. Please. Thank you. you might please. get read out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Until next time, we hope you're feeling happier, healthier and better. <laughs>